We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. This is Casey. Introducing the podcast? This is new. Anyway, I just want to clarify before we get started that we recorded this and the next episode before our Goosebumps episode, so you might hear some references to our recording sessions timeline that make no sense. Anyway, Morgan, Please take it away. Also, I realized we like did this oddly because I'm pretty sure I did the Pride and Prejudice intro, which means that I have you to should do. be introing this and I should be introing Goosebumps. Yeah. Which like I'm mildly entertained by, but is weird. Yeah, I feel it's fitting because uh, it's for your birthday. So yes, let's just Woo. get to it. Welcome to Reread. It's a birthday episode. <laughs> Although it's not going to be coming out on your birthday or anywhere near your birthday. And the same same with the episode that's going to be for my birthday. But whatever. And also, this episode makes no sense given our uh, criteria for things (laughs) that we talk about. Because we're talking about, one, a movie that, two, I had never seen before. (laughs) (laughs) And the movie, of course, being Atlantis. But let's just first... Start with saying happy birthday, Morgan. Thank you. You are older now. Congratulations. I have aged. I'm smarter than you. I'm older. This is a movie, like I said, I've never seen it before, but you have a weird love for it. Mm -hmm. And we were actually supposed to watch this movie months ago together, but things got sidetracked by other people things i hate this year when will it die oh boy i hope it's soon i want to cry so we finally got around to it when we can't possibly be (laughs) together in the same room so (laughs) we tried watching it over zoom kind of illegally and (laughs) zoom could tell and it shut that down but we still kind of watched it over zoom together we just had to press play at the same time instead of me like zooming it to you yeah exactly so that that was fine it was a fun romp i suppose before we get into discussing the movie just tell us a little bit about why you love this movie so freaking much I really feel like the word formative is key here. Mm. I guess background on this movie. Uh, this came out in 2001. Mm-hmm. And so I was a wee child at this point. And it's one of the first movies I can remember seeing in theaters. I know it wasn't like actually at all one of the first ones I saw in theaters. But like, this is probably one of my first memories. This one in Lilo and Stitch. And the memories of Lilo and Stitch are just all of us crying. So, But this, is by far, is like the more positive of my early movie memories. So, yeah. And I think that, I mean, we'll talk about this a lot. Like, it's very different than other Disney movies. I think it was very different than a lot of the other movies I'd seen or things I was consuming at that point in time. My, my parents were relatively, I don't want to say strict, but like, my mom wanted to make sure I wasn't being traumatized by the media I consumed. <laughs> uh-huh. So, like, was pretty 
hardcore about making sure I didn't watch certain things that she thought were inappropriate. So, like, for instance, I wasn't allowed to play Pokemon for a really long time because she thought it was violent. <laughs> Which, like, if you've played the Pokemon games, it's not violent. Yeah. But, like, you know, my mom had obviously never played, and she knew it was about, like, pets battling each other, and, like, that sounds on the surface really violent. So... When you think of the sort of classic action-adventure movies that I would have potentially have seen at, like, however old I was at this point, a lot of those I wasn't allowed to watch until later. So, like, I didn't see Indiana Jones until later. I didn't see Lord of the Rings until later. I didn't see Star Wars until I was 16. So poor, poor child. This is probably one of my first action-adventure movies, which is, like, fun and exciting. And it's all about, like, discovering an ancient civilization and, like, magic that's also science which is a cool thing and i also want to say because i don't know if this will come up at all i saw this around the same time i saw studio ghibli's castle in the sky which has a decent amount of crossover with this movie in terms of themes because it's about an ancient civilization and like a magic blue crystal and this girl who doesn't realize the power of her like ancestry they're like decently crossed over so i think the combo of those two just like built a lot of interest in certain like tropes and themes that now like when i go back and watch those movies i'm like wow i understand so much about my taste and the way it is the way it is because like of these movies. So, really long-winded way of saying <laughs> that this movie really came to me at a crucial point in my life. You were young and, like, and didn't know any better. Well, also, like, <laughs> I think this movie really goes for what it's going for. It really tries its hardest. Yeah. I think, objectively, it does not succeed <laughs> on a lot of those things. I think that this was not one movie. I think this movie should have been, like, a TV series or, like, a trilogy. Like, we'll talk about the pacing, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, we will. And uh, the original storyboard for this movie was, like, five million hours long, so no one is surprised. But, like, it's really ambitious and it really tries. <laughs> and so, while I can objectively see it's in no way a perfect movie, it is perfect to me. Uh... <laughs> I, when I looked around on the internet after seeing this movie and trying to understand what I just watched, uh, <laughs> that was a sentiment I saw repeated over and over and over. Apparently, a lot there are a lot of people who saw this movie as a kid and were deeply informed by it. And they keep the phrase that they keep going to is, it's not perfect. <laughs> and the term not perfect is doing a lot of work. I would go to so far as to say this is a very bad film, but you're right. It's interesting in many different mm-hmm. ways, and we'll dig into that. But yeah, it's it coming at this as a nearly thirty year old man. I I wasn't informed by nostalgia in any way, and I and I yeah. I feel like a lot of the sort of nostalgia for this film and a lot of the sort of reclaiming this film nowadays as adults is a product of people thinking I loved this movie as a kid. So there must be something good about it. (laughs) And they're desperately trying to reclaim that bit of their childhood and not be, have it torn apart for them, which I understand we'll be doing that soon enough with me for my birthday episode. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Yes. I think that 
the kernels of some things in here that are great. And especially for, like, I think keeping in mind that it came out in 2001 and keeping in mind that, like, the directors of this movie had previously directed Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's the context from which they're coming into this. And I think that in terms of certain things, it's really ahead of its time or trying to be. I think that if the movie was made now by Disney, I think it would be probably a a better movie, like more cohesive in terms of plotting and structuring stuff. And also just like it would, I think it would hit much more of what people are looking for today. Yeah, it it would definitely be a lot more bland, Uh, (laughs) a lot more formulaic. This the thing this movie has going for is it's not formulaic. I mean, there there are some bits that are tropey. But this this does not follow any pattern that had been set for Disney films at that time. And thank God for that, because <laughs> anything that undermines the Disney formula is is a winner in my eye. So, you know, for that, it gets a gold star. Good job. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's kind of how I sold you on even watching this, right? Yeah, right. I said, this is like not Disney. Yeah, you just look at it and it looks like a Disney film. And you're like, oh, gross. But you're right. Not to get ahead of ourselves and to make a very strange comparison. <laughs> it puts me in mind of like Jodorowsky's Dune. It always leads back to Jodorowsky. For anyone who isn't familiar, there's a crazy cult film director by the name of Alejandro Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky. Or Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky. Forgive me for pronunciation. And he was working on a Dune adaptation way back when, and it never got made, but early production elements of it, which they're wild. They're just out of this world. It's like everyone was on shrooms when they were working on this film, but all these different elements from that movie would go on to inspire a lot of different things in sci-fi. So like the Hmm. Alien franchise, for example... Oh, shoot. I'm, I'm blanking on his name. The person who designed the alien creature worked on Jodorowsky's Dune. And a lot of the concept art that he created for Dune is basically the same stuff that he would create for Alien. So Alien would not exist without this failed attempt at adapting Dune. I feel like there's there's similar elements here where... Disney sort of embracing darker elements mm-hmm. was presaged by this film because this film is very dark. You see many people get killed. Yep. That was very shocking to see. But yeah, I, I suppose before we go any further, perhaps we should uh summarize. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> All right. Gonna keep this shorter than our Pride and Prejudice summary. <laughs> so The film opens on the city of Atlantis as it is being destroyed. (laughs) Like, literally out of the gate, people are dying. You see there's just this giant tidal wave that's coming to envelop the city. Everyone's panicking, and we kind of close in on a group of three people, a father, a mother, and a daughter. And the mother is suddenly, this bright light shines down from above, and she's suddenly just kind of drawn to it and then lifted up into it as the child and the father are left behind crying and the wave envelops the city. Then, <laughs> flash forward to Washington, D.C. in 1914. We meet Milo Thatch, who is a 
linguist and cartographer at I'm not sure if we're actually specifically told that he's at the Smithsonian, but he's at the Smithsonian. And he is talking about the city of Atlantis and how he believes that he knows the location of this special journal that has the instructions for how to find Atlantis. <laughs> You're crazy. I'm not. No, I'm not. And he is trying to get the Smithsonian to fund an expedition to find this journal called the Shepherd's Journal. And he's a goober. <laughs> he's got the big, giant, round glasses and, like, scrawny physique that indicate we're supposed to understand he's a nerd. Yeah, because the the way it opens on him is that he's giving a big exposition dump about his theory, and it seems like he's speaking to an audience. But as we find out, it's all just, like, mannequins that he's built. Yeah, to rehearse. <laughs> Socially awkward, all that jazz. Yes, all of those things. So he's got this big presentation today to, like, pitch his his expedition. And just as he's about to head out to go to the meeting, he receives two alerts in quick succession. One, that the time of his meeting has been moved an hour up. And two, that he, since he failed to appear to the meeting, it's been canceled. So obviously, um, there's some hijinks going on because no one wants to listen to his proposal which is proved by we see some of the higher ups talking about how they really find him obnoxious uh he chases one of them down he's like if you don't fund this i'm gonna quit and the guy's like look don't be like your grandfather who was totally crazy about this atlantis and like it ruined him be sensible give up on this so downtrodden milo goes back to his apartment, only to discover a sexy woman there. Yow. And I describe her that way because she's very much, we're given that femme fatale vibe. She's got the slinky little dress, the deep husky voice. She also is sitting in the dark in his apartment. How did you get in here? I came down the chimney. Ho, ho, ho. So, you know. <laughs> Don't worry, that doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, it's vibes, it's vibes. And she's like, my employer wants to speak with you. So she brings him back to this big mansion where he meets with this guy, Preston B. Whitmore, who is clearly fabulously wealthy and also bizarre because we walk in on him doing like yoga in a robe and nothing else. And he's like, hey, I knew your grandfather and I made you this bet with your grandfather that if he could find the Shepherd's Journal, if that actually existed, I would fund his expedition to Atlantis. And also kiss him on the mouth. And there's a picture of that. Also, I want to just say, because I, this might not get brought up later on, but like there's just a picture of Whitmore and Milo's grandpa like arms around each other that's like in front of the fireplace. It's like the big showcase picture. Like it kind of looks like it's been painted. Like it doesn't, it's way too big to be a photograph for yeah, those yeah. times. I'm just saying they kissed more than that one time. <laughs> <laughs> There are a lot of elements in this movie that are very strange, but we'll get into that. Anywho, he then gives Milo the Shepherd's Journal because it turns out that his grandpa went on this expedition to Iceland to, like, find this journal with a whole bunch of other people, found it, and now Preston B. Whitmore is willing to fund Milo's expedition to Atlantis. So he's like, I got all the old crew back together from the Iceland expedition. There's this big ship. You ready? You're going. Milo's like, chill. Well, not actually chill. Milo's like, oh my god, I'm so excited. <laughs> That's who he is. So then um, we get to the ship at the start of the expedition. We're very quickly introduced to a lot of the those sort of bang characters. We have Commander Rourke, who 
is leading the expedition, was also on the Iceland expedition. Most of these people were on the Iceland ex- expedition. <laughs> expedition. Eh. <laughs> the sexy lady from before is um, Helga, uh, normally just referred to as Lieutenant, and she's uh, his second in command. We have Dr. Sweet. We have Mole, who's like into digging and dirt. We have Cookie, who's the chef. We have Audrey, who's the mechanic. Uh, we have Vinny, who's the demolitions expert. These people are all given little, like, short introduction sequences with Mike Milo so that we know who the important people are in life. And then as they're just sailing, like, very quickly on, and Milo's giving a presentation about how, like, the first sort of obstacle they'll face is this leviathan that's said to guard the entrance to Atlantis. What do you know? They're attacked by the leviathan. And what do you know? It's not a fish. It's a machine. Jiminy Christmas. It's a machine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jiminy Christmas. It's a machine. Jiminy Christmas. It's a machine. That That is the literal line of dialogue. Jiminy Christmas. It's a machine. Jiminy Christmas. It's a machine. Jiminy Christmas. It's a machine. So very quickly, the ship is destroyed. Uh, Milo and the rest of the important characters, plus some other extras, are able to escape in some little submarines. But I think it says that basically there were 200-something <laughs> men that started the expedition, and we're left with like 30-something. <laughs> so like, more just death. Uh-huh. So they begin traveling to Atlantis. We see sort of a montage of like, Milo is maybe not the greatest in terms of, like, always being able to read accurately or direct them, and he's kind of a goober and doesn't doesn't socialize well. So, like, the other members of the crew, like, play pranks on him or aren't very nice to him, and he's kind of excluded from the group. Finally, we get to some place where Milo's like, okay, yes, we're in the right place. We have to go somewhere else next, but they're going to camp down for the night. And basically, Audrey feels bad enough for him because he look, Milo looks so pathetic that she's like, hey, come sit with us. And there's a lot of learning about characters' backstories. So, like, for instance, we learn that Dr. Sweet is, like, of uh, mixed Black and Native American descent. Uh, we learn about how Vinny used to work at a flower shop. And he wants to reopen his, this flower shop and how Audrey, who is the daughter of the mechanic from the first expedition, is saving up to open up another shop with her dad. So it's just kind of get some some warm fuzzies about these people and let Milo bond with them a little bit. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Wait until I'm done with the summary. Okay, okay, okay. My apologies. <laughs> And then uh, Milo gets up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night and, like, shines his flashlight accidentally on this big, I don't know how to describe it, like, lantern-looking thing yeah. up in the in the roof. And these bugs are woken up and disturbed by him. And turns out these bugs um, set things on fire when they're angry and disturbed. So they come down and burn down the whole camp. <laughs> uh, again, our key characters manage to escape. Some other people die. And Milo, in sort of the wreckage of their escape, is separated from the rest of the team for a bit. And he wakes up with this cut on his shoulder and these strange people in front of him who are speaking in another language. And one of them comes forward and using this blue crystal around her neck, she manages to heal his cut. And he's like, whoa. And then they go running off. And so he chases after them, chases, chases, until he comes out onto this overlook. And there's the city of Atlantis. 
rest of the crew roll up behind him because they came in through a different way. I should mention that the rest of the team landed at the base of a dormant volcano. This will be relevant later. We're told a lot of information about this volcano. It's relevant. (laughs) So the strange people that Milo had encountered corner them with their spears and start speaking in this language that we assume is Atlantean because then Milo starts speaking it back. But then they start switching into other languages. So like they switch into Latin and then into like French and it's a whole thing. And Milo's like, their dialect must be a root one for everything else. And that's why they can speak all these languages. Anyhow, eventually it turns out they can speak English. (laughs) Glad we don't have to have the rest of the movie in subtitles. And uh, the girl who healed him is like, hey, welcome to Atlantis. Come see my dad. Because turns out her dad's the king. Things like I don't, I don't want you here. I don't want you here at all. How rude! And Commander Rourke, who by this time we might have some suspicions about, because he and Helga have been talking about some interesting. <laughs> is like, hey, okay, I understand. Just let us have you know twenty four hours to like get our shit back together, and then we'll be out of your hair. We just need to resupply. We need to rest, etc. So the king's like, fine, 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 fine. <laughs> And the rest of the team is like, hey, Milo, why don't you go talk to that girl? See if you can find out some information, like, see if you can figure out what's going on. So Milo goes to talk to her, but she corners him first and is like, I have questions for you. So they end up kind of going back and forth a little bit. During this, we find out that, one, her name is Kita, and that she's the little girl we saw in the opening sequence whose mother was taken away during the disaster, which means she's like super old. And we also find out that because the Atlanteans have been trapped here for so long and so many of them died, that they've been losing parts of their culture. So for instance, no one knows how to read anymore. So Milo is actually a hot commodity. Uh, yeah. Because he can read Atlantean. So for instance, he is able to read the instructions on this flying vehicle and get it to work, which he has been trying to do for God knows how long. So they have some little expeditions. They talk about, like, you see them wandering around basically the entire city together talking about things. And at some point, she's like, hey, I want you to, like, read these murals that are underwater because I think there's some important stuff on there. And so they go down. Milo reads the murals. Turns out these blue crystals that all the Atlanteans are wearing are basically their power source. It's what's keeping them alive. It's what's powering all their technology. It's what saved them from the giant wave thing. So right after this shocking revelation, Milo comes out of this water swim with Kida, and the rest of the crew is there and they've got guns. Guns. Lots of guns. We just came on this expedition for the money. We want that that power source. And Milo's like, no, you don't understand. If you take it, they're they're gonna die. Like the Atlanteans are gonna die. They're like, we don't care. They're all led by Rourke. So he's the one who's primarily saying this. He's like I just want the money. I don't care about these people's lives. So he uh, manages to capture Kida, even though she she does put up quite a fight. And by pointing a gun at Kida's head, is able to get Milo to translate this page that he stole from the Shepherd's Journal that helps uh, give an idea of where, like, the main, the main crystal that all of their little crystals are from. And all it says is that the heart of Atlantis lies in the eyes of its king. So they go back to the king. They rough up the king a lot. And then by sitting on the king's throne, Rourke is able to realize there's this symbol in the rocks in front of his throne, and in the middle of the symbol is where it's sort of, I don't know what to call it. It's, it's like an elevator. <laughs> yeah, an elevator. 
So Rourke, Helga, Milo, and Kida get on this little elevator, go down to where there's just this giant crystal spinning around in this underground chamber surrounded by these rocks carved into the shapes of ancient Atlantean kings. And while they're down there, Kida, just like her mother in the beginning of the movie, is called to the crystal. This blue light hits her. She kind of goes like hypnotized almost. And she goes up and basically merges with the crystal. So now the crystal looks like Kida. Rourke puts her in a box <laughs> and goes to leave Atlantis um, and leave Milo and Dr. Sweet, who has previously protested the treatment of the king. And Milo's like, you all suck. How can you do this? Seriously, Audrey, Vinny, you're going to like sell people out just so you can like open a mechanic shop and a flower shop and all that. And Audrey is about to leave when it's clear she's struggling with her conscience. And finally, she's like, Nope. So she gets out, goes behind, stay with Milo. The rest of the crew, with the exception of Bork, Helga, and Faceless Extras, also gets out and is like, no, this isn't okay. We're on Milo's side. And Bork is like, well, you can stay here too. See ya! Drives off, blows up the bridge so that they can't follow. He's a villain. <laughs> he does that thing. Oh, he punches Milo in the face. So then they go back in, the king is dying, uh, presumably because the soldiers were hitting them with the butts of their guns, and he's like, Milo, you have to save Kida. Like, if she stays merged with the crystal for too long, she'll never come back. The crystal will basically eat her. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, Atlantis was the disaster that happened to Atlantis happened because, like, I tried to use the power of the crystal for war, and it got angry, and it destroyed the city because the crystal has this sort of consciousness. Etc. He's like, Go save Kida. Save Atlantis. And Milo's like, I don't know if I can do that. I suck. Which, like, fair. He does list, like, all the things he's done wrong in the movie. And you're like, wow, Milo, you've really caused a lot of problems. But then uh, Dr. Sweet reminds him of something his grandfather said. He's inspired. So he gets his crew and the Atlanteans onto these flying vehicles. They chase after Rourke. There's a big fight scene in the dormant volcano. <laughs> Which involves, at one point, like, blowing up the helium balloon that's lifting them out of the volcano. And lots of firing laser things and guns and bombs. And it's a big fight. Milo is able to defeat Rourke and uh, get Kida back and, like, leash her up. But because of all the explosions, they've woken up the volcano. So they hurry back to Atlantis, free Kida from the box. Using the power of the crystal, she's able to protect Atlantis and then separates from the crystal, comes down. She and Milo hug it out. Then the sort of end of the movie is Milo has decided to stay in Atlantis with Kida. The rest of the team goes back. They each get a crystal of their own. They go back and tell Preston Whitmore the real story, but they lie to everyone else and say that Atlantis was deserted. They bring back treasure as proof and stuff, and so they're all now fabulously wealthy, but they're lying to make sure no one else can come and harm Atlantis. And that's the movie. I think that was shorter. I, I think so, too. I really tried. You know, you tried to match the pace of the film, and you you couldn't quite reach reach the pace, <laughs> but that's okay. Oh, man. Well, I suppose you, you are more familiar with this movie, so how did it live up to this rewatch? I mean, to be fair, I watched this, like, two months ago, so <laughs> it really hasn't... I mean, I think I'm very aware of the problems. You can tell just from the summary that there are huge pacing issues. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, like, 
the whole thing after they discover Atlantis could have been a whole other movie. Yeah. Even like, I think you mentioned while we were watching, there's a, a decent amount done to set up the ship. <laughs> and some of it's like pretty relevant. So for instance, you see that the balloon thing that Rourke and his team trying to escape in, in the intro of the boat, when you're looking at the little model of it, in terms of planting and payoff, this movie does a pretty good job. But that said, like you have this big intro of the boat, and the boat gets demolished pretty fast, which I think is an interesting, like, narrative choice. But also, like, it's it's hard because you were only on the boat for, like, five minutes. Right. It doesn't work. Like, you get all these. It, it feels like it's trying to subvert a lot of different elements of adventure films and Disney films and whatever. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of these amazing glamour shots of the ship when it's first introduced. And it's a whole thing when it finally sets out to sea. Take her down. Diving officer, submerge the ship. Make the depth 150 feet. Five minutes later. It's ineffective against the Leviathan, and it, it's destroyed, and 200-plus crew members are killed. You're just like, oh, okay. It happens almost like too quickly for you to feel really anything for anyone. You never really develop an attachment to the ship or to its crew, so that when it's gone, it's like, oh, I miss it. No, it's just like, well, there's still 70 minutes of this film left. So I guess I don't care anymore. So <laughs> it's it's weird because effectively it just narrows the crew down to the more essential members. Well, and it shows the danger of the quest. Yeah. This is not just a fun adventure film. They could legitimately get into really bad situations. This isn't helped by the fact, though, that like obviously none of the characters were actually introduced to who are important die. Which I feel like is is the problem where, like, I think occasionally this film runs into the issue of it being a Disney movie. Yes. Because I think that, you know, if it wasn't a Disney movie, we might have gotten, like, an intro to a character who is important who dies. Although they really try their hardest. There's a point at which, like, the, the boat is taking on water because the Leviathan's chomped it. And you see Audrey have to close a door to part of the engine room. And she has to close it with two men still inside. They're running for the door. They can't make it in time. We're just clones, sir. We're meant to be expendable. That's a pretty brutal shot in a kid's movie. Sure. But again, it's they're faceless nobodies. You don't feel it quite as much. Forgive me for this comparison, but it kind of reminds me of Suicide Squad in the sense that oh, if you've seen that film, there's one character... So the thing about Suicide Squad is that every major character gets at least two different intros. It's a very bad film. But there's one character who's part of the the squad who doesn't get any intros. And you're like, huh, that's strange. So, of course, this character dies off five minutes later. And you're like, oh. Right. And it was the that exact same thing. That character's sole purpose was to illustrate how dangerous this whole quest they're on. In theory, that makes sense. And you're going to be hearing me say that a lot for this movie. In theory, (laughs) that makes sense. But in execution, 
literally, it doesn't quite work. Well, and so you've got, yeah, the shit destruction, and then you've got, like, I I think the montage sequence is fine in Atlantis, but, like, then you've got the point where they decide they do want to actually bond with Milo. Mm-hmm. Which, again... Oh, my God, it yes. It could have been great if it was this whole thing where, like, you know, we have, like, some time with them not being interested in him, and then some time, some more time for them to bond, instead of, like, they get this one scene, <laughs> which, like, is a nice... <laughs> It's a nice scene in that you get to learn, like, non-essential things about the characters, which I always kind of like. You're not only learning, like, plot-relevant things about them, you're learning about just things about them. Which, like, if this was a TV show... Yeah. And they'd had more time, instead of having to pack all of this into this one scene, could have been great, because the characters do have a good back and forth with each other. A lot of them are familiar with each other from the previous expedition. There's a nice banter. If they'd really had time to develop that... Could have been great. I could have been a contender. Just to pause here on this, I'm sure we'll talk more about it. The diversity in these characters is really great. Oh, yeah. I mentioned, like, Dr. Sweet is mixed race, Native American. Audrey is Latinx. Uh, I believe... Oh, yes. She is specifically Puerto Rican. I'm not My sure people. if they, like, directly say that. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vinny's Italian, so that's not really... Anything. But you know what I mean? Like, they're, they're a diverse group of people. Um, the representation, I feel like, especially of Audrey and Sweet, is, like, good. They're, like, interesting characters, mm-hmm. the little bit you get of them. Unfortunately. Oh, boy. You, you get very little of them, though. Right. And halfway through the movie, you get to Atlantis, which, again, the Atlanteans are also um, ambiguously brown um, with white hair. So then half the movie has to be, like, setting up Kita, who is another, again, great character, but gets rushed because she's only got half the movie (laughs) and has to set up everything about Atlantis. So I think that this really should have been multiple movies. Yes, this this movie, there there are so many scenes. I do want to talk about this scene where you learn all the backstories of these, these various characters because the scene is not quite, but almost literally is introduced by Milo like sitting in his tent and being like, Okay, this is the scene where I learn about who all of you are. Then they all give their elevator pitch of like, yeah, I'm a spunky kid from the neighborhood. I worked on cars with my dad and I'm going to open up a second shop. <laughs> and it really is like, um, you know how in plays they have the character lists or whatever. Dramatis persona? Yes, yes. and That's not how it's pronounced, but that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Where they they list each character, and then it's like two, three sentences about who this character is and what they're about. That's basically this scene, is everyone just summarizes themselves, and... <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that they're like interesting stories. Right. Theoretically, like Vinny has this whole thing about like he worked in his family's flower shop and he was like bored out of his mind. And then the place next door blew up and he just fell in love with explosions, (laughs) which is like really entertaining. And his little monologue about it is like pretty entertaining. But you're right. It's like very much like if you watch the scenes very much like I must set up these characters now (laughs) so that you know things about them. And like. Audrey, too, is like her dad wanted a son to take over the mechanic business and a son to be like a boxing champion. And he had two daughters instead. Milo's like, so, so what happened? And she's like, well, my sister's like got a shot at the, the whatever boxing medal is. We like sports and we don't care. Who knows? In the context of also this being 1914. 
that's cool shit. Well, even in the in the context of it being 2001, that's cool shit. Yes, indeed. But again, yeah, it's introduced in like two seconds. Instead of like really getting to see Milo spending time with these characters and bonding with them, we get, yeah, one like five minute scene. It's so weird because in theory, it's great because you have all these characters with very diverse backgrounds. Like you said, one's Italian, one's French, one's from the South. <laughs> one is like a crankety Brooklyn type, I, or I'm not sure where she's yeah. from, but she's like, she's got that East Coast vibe. And so you get this really, really diverse cast, but the movie never calls attention to it and never pats itself on the back, mm-hmm. unlike what Disney does nowadays with all of their f-ing Marvel films. And that's a breath of fresh air. It's just unfortunate that literally. <laughs> All their character development is contained in those like two, three sentences that they get to explain their backstories. Yeah. It's unfortunate because there there are other elements later on in the movie where like Audrey makes the decision to forsake the money in order to support Milo. And it's supposed to be this big emotional moment and very powerful and you feel the heroism of it. But at least for me, it didn't quite work because we just didn't have enough time with any of these characters to really develop them up to this point. So everything feels like constant whiplash. (laughs) You know, it feels whiplash when they backstab Milo and it feels like whiplash when they decide to team up with Milo. Oh, it's... (laughs) Yeah, I want to like... Pause on the backstabbing, too, just because I think that one of the really, again, interesting things they really try and do in this movie is you said you're pretty clear from early on. I mean, I think you met Rourke and you're like, so he's a bad guy. Yes. Well, there's a line early on that's just a dead giveaway where he says, yes, this expedition should be enriching for all of us. And then he looks straight into the camera. (laughs) He doesn't look straight into the camera, but yeah. I know, but... No, I was clarifying for the, like, everyone who hasn't seen this movie. Yeah. <laughs> that was sarcasm. He doesn't look straight into the camera. He does say the unriching thing. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I I imagine as a kid, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on it, on it until much later when, oh my god, this scene, I made a comment to you as this scene was happening, <laughs> Rourke... Helga and Milo sitting in a car together and Milo's just blabbering on about the significance of something or other and nobody's listening to him and then Rourke and Helga who are sitting right next to him are chatting about their scheme they're like oh there are people here this changes everything and then Rourke in a very menacing voice is like this changes nothing we're gonna (laughs) murder them all you're all going to die he doesn't say that last bit (laughs) But he basically should have. (laughs) And Milo just doesn't. That's where the pacing is also weird. Because if the pacing was more normal, there would have been an opportunity for Helga and Rourke to like go aside and talk by themselves. Rather than having the main character and the hero of the movie sitting literally right next to them while they are scheming. (laughs) That's just like a a stupid error that could have easily solved by just having... Showing Milo in one car, because they're driving across the bridge to get into Atlantis at this point. 
have Milo in one car, see him blabbering, and then move to the car that has Helga and Rourke. It would have been a simple fix that would have been a lot better. Um, But yeah, I think that, so like, at least from my memories of being a kid, Rourke being the villain was pretty goddamn obvious. Uh Uh-huh, okay. There's that enriching thing, and then that line where they're talking about the people, it was pretty clear. It's the rest of the team that I think is supposed to come as a surprise. Like, you know Rourke and Helga are not on the up and up. So it's the rest of the team that's supposed to be the betrayal, the surprise, the shock. And I do think it is, like, again, an interesting thing to have in a Disney movie. If, say, the pacing didn't suck. (laughs) It would be, like, really interesting to have these characters that, like, Milo spent time bonding with and really, like, growing close to and that we like. They're likable characters. They're likable people have this betrayal. And, like, we're kind of hinted at it because during the whole, like, five-minute bonding sequence... Milo's like, isn't it so great, the knowledge we're going to find? And he's like, unless maybe you're just in it for the money. 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 I'm going to say money. You do have a sense of their priorities, but like, you know, you never, you never think, or ideally you wouldn't think they're going to also be like that they're in league with work. So yeah, having them betray him and then, you know, have their conscious and consciences get the better of them. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool. It's just like, you're right. We don't get enough time because the second half of the movie is also devoted to Kita time. So it doesn't quite work. I mean, I still feel it because I love this movie. And so I think that moment where you see Audrey really think about it and then decide to get back out of the car and go back to Milo, like impacts me. But it could have been better. <laughs> there, there were a couple of moments because I could, I could see you in the corner of my screen where <laughs> something was happening. And then I made some snarky comment about it. And then I look over and I see, like, I could tell you're like nearly in tears about like, <laughs> you know, like you're, you're getting very emotional watching this movie. And then it just like, I shock you back into reality. And <laughs> so, I wasn't like, nearly in tears. There were, I was very enthusiastic. I'm a very enthusiastic watcher. The point is, there are a couple moments that I could tell just by looking at your face that you were very emotionally involved in in this movie. And I get it, because those moments are powerful in theory. (laughs) (laughs) What we needed more of, and I guess we should provide a little background on this, that this movie is only 90 minutes long about. And (laughs) at the time, that was pretty standard for animation. And there are lots of reasons why, but Disney films were 90 minutes long and that was that. And like you said, the storyboards for this movie were a zillion times longer than that. (laughs) The first draft of the script was 155 pages, which in filmmaking, one page generally equals one minute. So we were talking about a two and a half hour long animated film, which never would have happened ever Mm -hmm. at that time especially so you really do feel that two and a half hours has been shrunk into one and a half so there are a lot of moments that feel like they're trying to take shortcuts in developing characters so there's this cute like little interaction between milo and audrey where one of the cars breaks down and audrey's going to fix it and she's like i gotta get some tools or whatever and milo jumps in because At the Smithsonian, he worked on the boiler there. He was basically a mechanic there. And he comes in and quickly fixes it. 
And then there's a long, dumb joke that is not funny. And we'll talk about the humor in this movie <laughs> that he's like, oh, yeah, I worked on it's This is a, like a 95 carburetor C boff nod 22. I worked on these back in the Smithsonian, blah, blah, blah. Very humorous indeed. Hysterical, in fact. <laughs> Audrey just doesn't give a fuck and does this thing where she pretends to punch him and he flinches and she's like two for flinching and there are cute moments like that that are supposed to indicate characters bonding pay mm-hmm. attention but they're so small and so quick that they don't at least for me, they didn't quite latch. I never felt like this budding friendship, at least between Milo and Audrey, ever quite reached something substantial or profound. It was just like a, an initial meet cute kind of thing. It tries its darndest with the time it was allotted to make these characters work. But they're really, honestly, they're just too many characters. We're talking, there's a crew, in addition to Milo, there's nine characters, I think? Yeah, something like that. It's a big group. like, crew that's trying to find Atlantis. And that's not even including the Atlanteans. The important crew. Yeah. So then, if you add the Atlanteans, there's two more. So there's 11 major characters in this movie that are supposed to be fleshed out in one and a half hours. It's not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can try your darndest, but there are just some characters that will never be more than a single dumb joke. Like, right. I wish, oh God, how I wish Mole was never in this movie. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not a big Mole fan either. I will say, at least I think he's more essential than um, Cookie, the chef. Yes. Who has a number of dumb jokes that I'm just like, I could have done without him. I think they should have picked their dumb joke character and I think they should have gone with Mole. Because I prefer a mole. I do not. But yes, I think they should have cut down the main crew by a little. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. I love that uh, Packard, who I don't think we've actually named, but she's like the radio communications person. She's the grumpy old lady that we referred to earlier, who like has this recurring line where she like spits out a cigarette and is like, we're all going to (laughs) die, which is just great. I love that she's very much like a a bit thing and i think it's okay for her to be like still there in a bit thing maybe some of the other characters should have had their roles shrink a little bit so that a couple of the other crew members could have been more significant but yes there there are too many characters for the very short length of this movie speaking of dumb lines <laughs> there are a lot of dumb lines there are a few cookie is definitely uh he has some line about how Milo's so skinny that if you laid him horizontal and he stuck out his tongue, he'd look like a zipper. See, and I think that's his best line in the entire movie, which says something for the quality of his other lines. <laughs> there's a there's another time where he exclaims, sweet mother of Jefferson Davis. Yeah, he's like very much like, oh. so he's, he's the chef and he's like, the four basic food groups are like bacon, grease, lard, something. <laughs> Beans, whiskey, bacon, and lard. I got you four basic food groups. Beans, bacon, whiskey, and lard. But it's it's not just him. It's not just no, him, it's Morgan. it's not just him. 
Mole is also stupid. Mole is very stupid. The way he's introduced literally made me want to grab my head and scream because <laughs> everything's happening so fast that you can't keep track. And I, that's part of the point that you're supposed to be like caught off guard by this weird, weird character because he's like, he literally looks like a mole. He's got like <laughs> these glasses that zoom in and zoom out. So he looks very strange, very alien. And he, and he speaks a mile a minute in a French, very thick French accent. And you're just like, oh, this wacky character is so zany. But me, I'm just screaming internally because I don't have any f***ing clue what's happening. <laughs> you have disturbed the cat. Ah, for me? You have disturbed the cat. You have come around the globe spending the centuries. <laughs> what have you done? England must never murder his father. So, like, funny story, Mole's intro, like you said, just goes so fast. I think this was the first time I caught all the lines. (laughs) (laughs) And how many times have you seen this movie? A lot. (laughs) And I get that it's supposed to give you the impression like Milo's very caught off guard. Like he runs into Mole, Mole basically like freaks out at him because Milo's disturbed his dirt samples. And then Dr. Sweet comes in and is also talking very fast and confusing him and Milo's just very overwhelmed. And like you definitely feel that as a viewer because you too are overwhelmed. Yes. But yeah, I think Mole has a couple of moments that I really appreciate, which is probably why I would cut him less than Cookie because I think he actually has some like narrative utility also just like one of my favorite moments of the bonding scene they've all given their little stories and then mole is like somewhere and milo's like so what's up with him and sweet's like you don't want to know i didn't want to know but audrey told me and trust me you don't want to know and it's this great like i like that moment because i think it's funny but also like mole like actually has a purpose like you see him doing digging things he's the one who gives the information about the volcano He's got some, like, actual narrative purpose going on with his weirdness. I wish they'd made him a little bit less weird. At least just not talk so fast. <laughs> For God's yeah. sake. I mean, that that intro scene, in theory, is very good because not only does it establish who Mole's character is, it also establishes Sweet's character as very reassuring, very sweet you establish these character traits for two different characters in one scene. Very effective, very efficient, but it's just cranked up a little too much. So you really miss the the important takeaways. And I feel like that's a that could describe so many different scenes in this movie. Like the the intro scene of the entire movie, it just throws you straight into the action. And you're like, whoa, what, what, what's going on? What's, what is this tidal wave? Why was there a nuclear bomb? Why is everybody dying? Who are these people? What is happening? Why is, why is this person being abducted by aliens? What's going on with you? You know, it's just like, and you just want, you're like, oh, slow down. You know, <laughs> it's like you're with a toddler who just drank your entire cup of coffee when you weren't looking and This kid is now bouncing off the walls and you're like, oh my God, stop. He's going, you know, and you're like, oh, and you just, just, (laughs) yes, this is what it feels like going insane. (laughs) That's what this movie is. (laughs) 
<laughs> I wouldn't quite go that far. But I mean, you're right. It's like very, there is no. There is no break. Actually, I don't want to say there is no, there are a couple of moments of breathing space, but they're so rare that it's like, <laughs> whoa. So like, for instance, I think part of the reason I love the, the montage is that like, it's a little breathing space yes. in the movie Nobody's and it does talking. give you character moments <laughs> yeah. in between the montage. Like that little Audrey clip is one of them. There's like moments with Vinny and Maul that are just kind of like your breathing space after like everything that's happened in the first like, what, 30 minutes of this movie. <laughs> Not even that probably. <laughs> and there are a couple other uh like nice moments of just being able to breathe. Um, I think one thing I appreciate is that when... I'm skipping way ahead. When Kiva gets taken up into the crystal, that sequence. Oh, that seems very good. It's beautiful. It's like given all the time it needs. And yeah, it's visually stunning and the music is gorgeous. Um, same for when like the city is about to be um, like the volcano is erupting. The defense of the city is another like just beautifully done sequence that like even though it is like the climax of the movie. Right. It feels epic but also like you can you're able to like have the space to breathe it all in but all of these moments are some of the dialogue-less moments in the movie yes Shut up. When there's no dialogue happening, this movie is great. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, yeah, not to say some of the dialogue isn't actually good. It's just that it's, yeah, so rushed and so, like, it's a roller coaster ride. It is a roller coaster ride. It's so funny that we've been talking about this now for, like, an hour, and we Mm -hmm. haven't even touched Atlantis. (laughs) We are just talking about the first half of the film. Honestly, I think that's as much of a sign as any that this is two different films shoved together into one and that's so fundamentally bad i think it would have been a really cool like mini series yeah because that could be a cool thing it's like you're let's say it's an eight episode mini series so yeah the first like four episodes you know you're you're doing the the exploring thing they're trying to find atlantis you're doing this team bonding you're like and you think of course the end of the show will be them finding atlantis or the ruins of atlantis or something and then all of a sudden at the end of the fourth episode, they find Atlantis and there are people there. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And then the show gets to like shift and change and, and have different things going on. The transition is hard <laughs> in a 90 minute movie. Um, because yeah, the second, the second half, most of our familiar crew members fade into the background as Milo gets to know Kita and gets to know Atlantis and gets to find out what's happened. And I love Kita. I think Kita's a great character. Well, in theory. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I would say she probably gets, of all the secondary characters that are not Milo, probably the best development. Sure. (laughs) Like, you spend the most time just kind of one-on-one with her. But, yeah, it's it's rough (laughs) to make that that transition into that and to then basically lose all your characters that you thought you were going to be getting to know, only to have them come back and betray you. Catch the second part of our two-part series on a one-part movie next week on Reread. See you later. Later.